Good morning, Calvary family. Uh, welcome, visitors. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, if Calvary's not your home and you're sussing us out, seeing what we're about, welcome. Uh, welcome to all those online watching us. Uh, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come before you in uh, your holy name, Lord Jesus, and, and, and by your spirit. And we, as your people, we, we admit our lack and our need of you. We, uh, as we come before your word, we pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate your word to our hearts. Uh, not only that you would do that, that you would transform our hearts, that you would, uh, Lord, inflame our desires for you. Lord, that you would uh, give us understanding, give us wisdom, Lord. Um, help us in this, we pray. And as Steve prayed, we do lift up our brothers uh, that are struggling with ill health, Lord. Um, particularly think of Wendy and Max at this time and help us to remember them daily in prayer. Um, so, Lord, we commit this time into your hands. May it bear good fruit in our hearts and bear good fruit for your kingdom. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at two verses uh, this morning, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, and also 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Um, these two verses are, are powerful verses. They are really linked together. Uh, they, they cover the same the same things in, in, but in slightly different ways. So we're going to look at these two verses. Now, uh, one, one of the questions uh, we could ask, well, first of all, Paul wrote First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians and First Corinthians, but uh, the, uh, he wrote Corinthians and Peter wrote 1 Peter, obviously. Uh, if they had computers back when they, in that day, in their day, you know, when they writing this out. If they had computers, uh, these, two, these two verses, they would have hyperlinked these two verses to a chapter in the Old Testament. Has anyone got any idea, you know, if you, Peter and Paul had their laptops out when they were putting these books together and they could hyperlink them to a chapter in the Old Testament? What, what uh, chapter in the Old Testament do you think they might hyperlink them to. In other words, what, what was going through Paul and Peter's minds when they were penning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Where were they drawing from? Where was their mind drawing from in the Old Testament? Any ideas? Isaiah? Isaiah 53. Okay, this is the great chapter that trumpets uh, what Jesus the Messiah did on the cross for us. A little side note, if you've got any Jewish friends or you meet any Jewish people and make Jewish friends, um, point them to Isaiah 53. This is the chapter that the rabbis don't want to go near because it gets really dangerous. If you start reading and meditating upon Isaiah 53, you cannot help but see Jesus on the cross and what Jesus achieved on the cross for us. 
Okay, but unfortunately, you know, for, for, for many Jews, that the, 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 the blinkers are down, you know, they cannot see. Um, but may we point them in that direction, Isaiah 53. So both of these verses deal with five things. They deal with us, they deal with sin, they deal with Jesus, they deal with the cross, and they deal with righteousness. I'm going to be looking at righteousness today. Uh, 1 Peter 2.24 actually takes it a little bit further, but we're going to look at that later on because we're going to look at first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 first. But before we do that, we should ask our questions, you know, righteousness, what actually is it? What is righteousness? The Hebrew word Sadiq and the, and the Greek word dikaios means straight or right. Okay, right, righteousness, that makes sense. So it's being right and living rightly. So to be righteous is to be right, to be straight and to be living rightly. Now we know that God is righteous. Okay, righteousness is actually one of his attributes as holinesses and justices, they're connected together. So righteousness is the essence of who God is. God is righteous. It's his essence of who he is. A question we could ask ourselves is, well, what about humans? Are humans righteous? Have they ever been righteous? Can we become righteous? And if we can become righteous, how does that happen? What about Adam and Eve? Right in the beginning, when they first created. Were they righteous? Well, Genesis 1.31 and Ecclesiastes 7.29 teach that originally humans, that is Adam and Eve, were created morally good and upright. They were created in God's image and therefore righteous. Okay, so Adam and Eve in, in the beginning, okay, in the, the garden paradise, were righteous but as we know, that the, the tragic story that impacts us and impacts our whole world is that they fell from that place or that state of being righteous to a sinful state. And we've inherited you know, the, the tragic horror of that and how that plays out in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own communities, in our workplaces, in our schools. You know, that plays out daily and we, we suffer in that, don't we? We have to deal with our own unrighteousness and the unrighteousness of the human heart. So the key that sort of pervades what we're going to be looking at today is that now Jesus is the only human who has perfectly fulfilled God's moral law and has maintained a righteous nature. So Jesus is fully human, okay, he is fully God, and therefore his righteousness is of an infinite value, and therefore it affords salvation and righteousness to all who trust in it. That's, that's the Christian faith. If we place our faith and our trust in what Jesus has done for us, okay, righteousness, his righteousness 
becomes our righteousness. All right, if you've got your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Now remember, the background to this verse is Paul is drawing from Isaiah 53. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an amazing verse. Um, I hope it's one of your favourites. I know for some of you it is, if not your most favourite, one of your favourite verses. Now this verse is a concise summary of the logic of the gospel, the gospel that saves us. All right. It's a highly compressed, but it's an extremely profound statement concerning the work of Jesus on the cross for all of humanity. And that's what makes this such a pivotal and such a core verse that we have to wrap our heads and our hearts around. If you're going to memorise a verse, this is one of them. All right. Now, there's some points we're going to draw out of 2 Corinthians 5.21. The first point is that Jesus had no sin. He knew no sin. So there was no inward thoughts, no inward attitudes, no inward motivations or any outward words or actions of Jesus that were sinful. So he was utterly and entirely righteous, perfectly righteous holy in his very essence. Blows your mind, doesn't it? Because it's so far from often where our hearts and minds are. But to be a being that is righteous in essence. All right? And it's, it is a mind-blowing thing to consider someone who has never, ever sinned in thought, word or deed. Not even on the radar or not even the ability to sin. All right? But yet... The mind, in some ways, the more mind-blowing thing, if we are in Christ, if he is our king, if we have placed our trust in what he has done upon the cross for us, that is our future, to be righteous in him, to have you know, at the core of our being, because of what he has done, his righteousness. That's, that's you know... Jesus will make heaven heaven, but the fact that everyone else with, that, with him will be righteous, that's, that's a mind-blowing thing we should meditate upon. The second point is that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for our sake. He chose to do it willingly and he did it sacrificially as an act of utter grace, utter graciousness towards us. Third point is that the, the word there, uh, it says there, he made him. Okay, so the question is, well, who is he? Who is he that made him? It's God the Father, all right? Um, in some version it says, God made him to be sin. Okay, so what does that mean? God made him to be sin. That Even though this is a short verse, there's just so much packed into it to unwrap and meditate and, and wrestle with. So what does it mean for Jesus to be sin? Okay, so at Calvary, upon the cross, Jesus took our sin 
our shame, our guilt, and he took it upon himself. Galatians 3.13 says that he took the consequences of our sin okay, upon himself. He became a curse for us. Jesus became a curse for us and he bore our punishment in our place. I heard only this week someone uh, said to me, the cross, what Jesus did on the cross can be summed up in four words. Four words, the cross. Jesus in my place. So such a beautiful way of putting it. Four words when we're thinking on the cross, about the cross. Jesus in my place. So God the Father, and this is where it gets really heavy, and, you know, if you, if you meditate upon this, it's got to bring you to tears. God the Father treated Jesus as if he was a sinner and had committed all of our sins and all of the sins of the millions of people that he died for. Okay, God the Father treated him as if he had committed those sins. He, he knew no sin. He had not sinned. But he was treated as if he had, was a sinner, even though we know Jesus is not a sinner. That's, that's heavy. So his punishment was death. It was a torturous death. It was separation from God the Father, and that's something he'd never experienced before. He experienced the wrath of God and the hatred of God the Father for the sin that he was bearing in our place. That's heavy. It's really heavy. Point four, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. And the key point there is in him. Okay, we must have union with Christ. We must be born again of him, washed clean by his blood. We must have placed our trust and our faith in him alone for our salvation. That's what gives us union with Christ. So the implication from what we've just worked through is that there is no other righteousness that can do this. It's only Jesus' righteousness that can do this. So it is Christ's righteousness alone that can save sinners. Point five. It says that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this, this displays a marvellous and an astounding exchange that takes place between us and between Jesus when we have placed our faith in what he has done upon the cross for us. Jesus takes our sin, he takes our guilt, he takes our shame, and it, we ex, he exchanges us, takes that from us, and then we receive his righteousness. So he imputes his righteousness to us. So that's that's the exchange that takes place at the cross when we've placed our faith and our trust in him. He's taken our sin. He gives us his righteousness. So we are made right with God. So Jesus doesn't just take our sin 
and make us righteous in God's sight. He does that, but he makes us righteous with his righteousness that we can have a restored relationship with God. So our acceptance and our new standing before God is solely through him alone. You, you may be familiar with grace, you know, the, the letters grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. So, having just worked through it and unpacked in some small detail what this verse is saying to us, what does it mean for us today? What, what do we do with this? What, what are the implications? How do we apply this to our lives today? Well, there's lots of things that we can take out of this. One of them is that there is no grounds for boasting. Okay? You know, if, if, if we are boastful Christians, well, there's, there's something desperately wrong. We, we haven't looked at the cross and understood understood what the cross what Jesus has done on the cross for us so we there is no grounds for boasting only humble and joyful thanks for what he's done and if there is any boasting it must be in the cross alone what is that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 6 14 you know I'll boast in nothing but the cross of Christ Another thing we can draw from this and apply to us is that we are made righteous and declared righteous by trusting in the finished work of Christ alone. So false righteousness is trusting in our performance to be right with God. And, you know, we're, we're wired that way from birth, you know, to earn and, you know, our, our culture, our, our workplace, everything wires us to earn what we get. You know, that's, that's the way our, our place works. We earn. We have to earn. And if we bring this into our, our walk as Christians, it, it's, it's false righteousness. We, can, we are declared righteous by trusting in what Christ has done alone and then our good works comes out of that. So Christ's righteousness, what he has done on the cross, is the ground which our hearts and minds must be rooted in and then out of that, the flower and the fruit of, our, of the, the Christian tree, if you want to think of us as, as a tree, the flower and the fruit is our good works that is grounded in what Christ has done. So we trust and place our faith in Christ and what Christ alone has done on the cross. And then out of that comes, or should come, our obedience and our, our good works. And something else to draw out of this is that because our sins demanded such a high price... Christ's crucifixion, then there really is no complacency or indifference towards sin. There shouldn't be. You know, sin is a serious, serious business and it required Christ's death upon the cross, his suffering in our place, and therefore we should have no complacency when thinking about our own sin. Forget about everyone else's sin, just let's think about our own sin. Another point is our peace and our joy and our strength has to be rooted in this. All right? You know, we're, everyone on the planet is, is seeking peace, is seeking joy, is seeking, you know, fulfilment. And 
by and large, seeking it in the wrong place. For ours, if we're born again, it must be rooted in this gospel message. So if we're feeling down, depressed, you know, which happens from time to time, more often for some people than others, but when we get to that place, you know, when our, our emotions are getting the better of us, What's happened here is our hearts and our minds have centred and running after and clinging to things other than the gospel message. All right. So how do we recenter ourselves so that we don't suffer those things? Well, we have to recenter ourselves upon Jesus and upon the gospel message versus exactly like the one we've just read, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So... My, uh, I implore you, I beseech you, I plead, I, I beg, if you are not into scripture memorization, do it, do it. And particularly verses like this that have the core of the gospel there. If you meditate and memorize and meditate upon these words and it's written upon the tablet of your heart, when you are feeling far from God, when you're feeling like, you know, I'm a train wreck of a Christian, which happens fairly often. Okay, you can recenter your heart and mind on the truth of this word, this gospel message of what Christ has done, and place our faith and trust in that. And when that happens, all right, we can only be joyful and thankful and grateful for an amazing Saviour that has done that for us. So yes, we need the whole Bible. We need the whole deep uh, richness of the Bible. But the gospel is the centre of God's message. So the gospel is like the cooking half of a Christian house. You know, back in the old days, you'd have the, the you know the, the the cooking half, which would heat the home. It would be where you'd cook the meal, where people would congregate around because of its warmth, and that is the cooking half of of, of the Christian life. The gospel message. The gospel is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. What are some other things we can do? Well, we can find out more about what the gospel is and how it impacts us. There's books that we can read. I'll just um, put a couple to you that are really good ones. This is a book called Living the Cross-Centred Life, Keeping the Gospel, the Main Thing by C.J. Mahaney. I've read it a number of times. It's a small, thin book. doesn't take long. There's only 70-odd pages, I think, in there. Sorry, 149 pages. It's quick. It's quick to read. I mean, you know, if you're a good reader, you can knock it out easily in an afternoon. But if you're not a good reader like me, it might take a bit longer. But, you know, there's books like this that you can read over and over again. And it, it just recenters you and re, recovers over the, the, the beauty and the richness and the deepness of what the gospel message is. That's a good one I can recommend. Another one I've almost finished. There's my bookmark. I almost finished it. Uh, the Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. And again, it's just unpacking the beauty and the glory and the depth and the, the, the height and the width of the gospel message. And as we read books like that by authors who know their saviour and know the gospel, it encourages us. There's books like that out there. Others, I'm sure. 
Martin Luther said, The gospel cannot be preached and heard enough, for it cannot be grasped well enough. So why am I hammering the gospel? Well, because we just can't understand it enough. We, we can spend the rest of our lives trying to plumb the depths of the gospel message. Last thing I'd like to bring out of this is that in all of our hearts, we've got a pulpit, just like there's a pulpit here and I'm preaching to you. You've got a pulpit in your heart and you preach to yourself daily, lots of stuff. Okay, As you're walking out through the day, you are telling yourself stuff. You are preaching messages to yourself. Again, I implore you, memorise verses like this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, meditate upon them, and then preach to yourself from verses like this. Pray from these verses like this. And... You know, this, I, I meditate upon this verse every single morning before I launch into the day, before I have my coffee. I, I run this verse through my mind. I get down on my knees and I just thank Jesus for what he has done for me. You know, and I, you know, I even put my, my thumbs on my wrists and go, Jesus, you bore those nails for me. How good are you, Jesus? You laid down your life, a wretch like me, that I could be saved, that I could know you, that I could be righteous, that I could be in a right relationship with you forever. It's a beautiful truth, a beautiful truth to meditate upon. And I keep coming back to it throughout the day. I keep meditating upon it. God's word is our weapon. So brothers and sisters, wield this verse well. It is a sharp sword to protect yourself. Alrighty. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're now going to move on to 1 Peter. So please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. Chapter 2 and verse 24. Now, this verse says the same things, really, but it, it goes a bit further. And I think, well, three things. I think it says three more things than what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Now, again, when Peter was writing this, if he had his laptop out, it would have hyperlinked Isaiah 53. Peter is drawing from Isaiah 53 as he is penning these words or speaking them to the guy that wrote them down for him. Okay, the first thing that this uh, verse, I think, adds to 2 Corinthians 5.21 is it refers to a tree. Now, you might notice that the greenies, they go on about trees. Probably observe that. Now, you've got to give them credit. They've got it partially right. Not just biologically. They photosynthesise and produce the oxygen and take away the carbon dioxide. Yeah. But they've missed... The tree. The tree. Okay, trees are important, but they have missed the tree. So if you ever get in con a conversation with a greenie, they're pretty easy to see, you know, you can spot them pretty easily. Go up to them and talk about trees. They're into trees. They love trees. Talk to them about the tree. The tree. Okay. Now... Notice also, we love our gardens, don't we? 
Okay, I know some people like to put bitumen and cement and paving everywhere, but generally we love our gardens. We put them around, in and around our homes, don't we? We even bring little trees into our houses in pot plants and things, don't we? We like trees. It's wired that way. Echoes. Echoes of the past. Notice that the Bible is also all about trees. Adam and Eve blew it all for us at the tree. You know, what we suffer today, all the pain and suffering and grief we suffer is because of what they did at the tree in the garden paradise in Genesis. Jesus won it all back for us on the tree at Calvary. How did God first really reveal himself? Exodus 3, Moses, the burning bush, the tree. He reveals himself in a tree, a burning tree. You go to Revelation 22, last chapter in the Bible. A tree, or trees, 12 of them. But it's all pointing to Jesus who heals the nations. And we can say, well, it's the the 12 trees for the healing of the nations. True. But it's all flowing out of what Jesus has done. So from start, middle, finish, it's about trees. The hinge in the middle is Jesus and what he has done on the tree. One, oh, we haven't read one, Peter. Sorry. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Let's read it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Okay, he did that on the tree for us. And we will, we will never under, fully understand that. We get little tastes, but again, we'll spend the rest of this life and the rest of eternity uh, grappling with what he did on the tree for us. Now, it's, it uh, says in there something I want to draw out that 2 Corinthians 5.21 doesn't say is that he, he, he died to sin, uh, we die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 does cover it, but I think this verse goes into it in more, in more depth. So... Peter stresses that Jesus bears the cross not just for our salvation but for our sanctification. The cross not only purchases our salvation, it purchases our obedience. And how does it do that? Well, as a result of Christ's death on the cross, his people, that's those of us that trust him, trust in what he's done, are now positionally dead to sin that we now may live new living lives to him in his righteousness. Let's go, keep your finger there and just go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verses 11 through to 13. 
says there, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God, to those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Okay. Paul again in Romans hammers away at this truth. So he bore our sins that we would stop sinning. Okay. So when we're, when we're tempted, so that the cross doesn't just purchase our salvation, it purchases for us the ability to not sin. So when, and so this is our weapon. When we are facing temptation, you know, pick your temptation, whatever it is you're wrestling with at the moment, okay, we are to look to the cross at what Jesus has done. And when your, you know, your heart is and your mind is, you know, going all over the place, wrestling with sin, again, put your thumbs, do, get practical, put your thumbs on your wrists and, and, and quote these verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.24, run them through your head and realise what Jesus did for us and realise he wants us to die to sin as he died for our sins. All right? And as we you know, grow and understand what he's done for us, he empowers us through this truth to overcome sin. All right. Not that we'll ever be sinless as Christians, but we will sinless. Okay, so we're not sinless, but as we grow in our faith, we should be sinning less. Again, these verses, we, we have to meditate upon them daily. Third thing that uh, this verse uh, does is that it says, by his wounds you have been healed. Now, healed in what way? Okay, many interpret uh, this verse that uh, this is talking about healing of physical sickness. Well, that may be, but if you interpret it that way only, you've missed the, the main point. Okay, context, context, context is always the key in interpreting verses, isn't it? We've got to look at the verse behind or even the whole chapter behind and we've got to look at the verses that come after and even the whole chapter and then take it in context of the whole book and then take that in the context of the whole Bible. If we don't, we're going to misinterpret what that individual verse is saying. So what is the context of this verse? Living righteously, being in right relationship. So it's talking about healing, physical healing, yes, but that's the minor issue. The main issue is healing our relationship with God. Humanity's problem is that humanity is alienated from God. So what is the healing? It's restoring and reconciling that relationship. So that is the the healing that it's really pushing for here. So if we are in right relationship with Jesus, if we are born again of his spirit, we've been washed clean by his blood, okay, we are positionally righteous 
in Christ. All right, we have his righteousness imputed to us. So we have to become what we already are. Someone told me that years ago, and I'm still grappling with that one. We have to become what we already are. We are righteous positionally in Christ, washed clean by his blood. God looks at us as righteous because it is Christ's righteousness that he sees. But we are to become righteous in, this, in a personal sense in that we are becoming sanctified. We are growing in holiness. We are pursuing Christ's holiness. So we're becoming what we already are. And we're in the now and not yet, aren't we? Okay, between the cross and the fulfilment of you know, the, the end of time, all right, where that will be complete and we'll be totally and utterly righteous and we will never even think another sinful thought. It won't even be on our, on our radar. We won't even have the ability to sin. That's amazing. That is amazing. Okay, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about it that, you know, you never meet ordinary humans, you know, if you can see what they're going to become. You know, what those who have rejected Christ's atonement, okay, what they become, you know, horrific creatures, worse than your worst nightmare. Or those of us that have placed our faith and trust in Christ, what we will become, Lewis says, you, if you were to see them now, you would be falling down your feet at your feet to worship them because they're so they're so like Christ they bear perfectly the image of Christ that is our future brothers and sisters that should get us excited so we are to become what we already are all right so the primary health problem of humanity okay is alienation from god I want to draw this to a close if you fellowship at a, 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 a fellowship like Calvary for a while, you experience brothers and sisters leaving for glory. You know, we, we've experienced a number of, of our dear brothers and sisters. Um, and so they're wake-up calls to us, aren't they? Um, Chris has been preaching to us on not living carelessly. Okay, so God is speaking to us. So your hair colour is not your problem or your lack of it. Uh, your weight is not your uh, problem. Your husband is not your problem. Your wife is not your problem. Your kids are not your problem. Your job is not your problem. Our main issue of life is our relationship with Jesus. And what he did upon the cross has won our reconciliation. He has given us his righteousness. Yes, we sin, but we have 1 John 1 9 to memorize and cling to. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That word righteousness there again. So, yes, we're sinners, but we're saved by grace. We are becoming what we already are. We stuff up daily, but we trust. we're not trusting in our performance. We're trusting in what Jesus has done. And that is the difference between biblical Christian faith and all the other religions of the world. 
And unfortunately, all the other religions of the world, there's a lot of that in the church because people are trusting in their performance, not on what Jesus has done for us. So brothers and sisters, trust in Jesus and his atoning work for your salvation and trust in what he has done on the cross for your sanctification so that we pursue him with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds and all our strengths. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your son because he is the Messiah, he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Holy Lamb of God. And we thank you that you have opened our hearts and our minds to the truth of what he has done upon the cross. Lord, help us uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, help us to daily meditate upon what you have done for us, Lord Jesus. Help us to meditate upon verses like the two that we've just looked at. Help us to carry them around in our heads and our hearts. Lord, help us to wield them, Lord, as truth against the lies that come to us daily uh, from the world, from our own sinful hearts and from, from Satan. Lord, Help us, and we pray. I pray if there's any of you, anyone here in this congregation, in, in this, this building that hasn't placed their faith and their trust in what you have done, Lord Jesus, please open their eyes to see your glory in the gospel, your glory on what you have done upon the cross, Lord. Draw us more deeply into this beautiful, rich, glorious, wonderful truth. May we meditate upon it daily, may we savor it. And may it inflame our love for you. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.